Hi there, I'm Veronica Wilhelm, and I'm here to tell you how to have the best day ever at work. A content warning for today's episode. We're going to be talking about trauma, so take care as you listen. The core, the root, the center of why I do what I do, and likely why you're here with me right now. We're talking about trauma and work and how to make workplaces non-traumatizing. And not only how to keep them from being non-traumatizing, but the real gift, which is a workplace that could actually heal trauma you have from somewhere else. Is it possible to make work a place for healing? Absolutely. I do it every day. But first, I want to start with a story about how we got here. I remember when I was starting my career just after college, I wanted to be a production manager in theater. Those are the people who pull together all the contracting and budgeting and oversee all the shows in a single season. They manage the people who manage the people who build sets and props and costumes. They tend to work very closely and directly with both the artistic and business leaders of the organization. So they have to have not only business acumen, but understand the artistic intent of the organization that they work for. It's a highly specialized position, and I was ready to jump in with both feet. But then the 2008 recession happened, which was right when I graduated college. I went into my internship hoping the industry would rebound in time for me to get a job the next year, but it didn't. I had a mentor at the time suggest to me I try on stage management. Production managers sometimes start as stage managers, so you'd be practicing some of the necessary skills while waiting for the economy to bounce back, was her logic. Um, It goes to show how little I knew about stage management. While there were some similarities in managing wants within constraints, that's about where the similarity stopped. But I did it and quickly landed jobs in two of the major theaters in town. Stage managers are hired per show, so I'd do one show in one space and then a few months later go to the other theater and do another show, and I'd sort of flip-flop back and forth between these two organizations. The experience was basically night and day in comparison. Both were fast-paced processes with a lot to do in a short period of time. I had the same title in both locations, but the feeling in the first place was decidedly more relaxed, collaborative, and supportive than the second. At first, I ascribed it to personality. Most stage management teams are left alone to function independently. There's so much trust in the industry for stage managers that it's believed that they're mostly well-intentioned, competent people. And my first team definitely had that. They were kind and willing to teach from a non-patronizing place, recognizing it was truly my first rodeo. The second team had a couple of folks who were not that. They seemed to like exerting power over me, the lowest person on the team, and seemed to have the overall attitude that they paid their dues and I should pay mine. I would routinely work almost 12-hour days and we would go 10 or 13 days in a row without a scheduled day off. And when I would point out how inhumane that was, I was met with a version of, that's showbiz, kid. One of them in particular seemed to enjoy telling stories about past shows to deliberately highlight the connection that they had with our team leader. And now I have a very different interpretation of this behavior. But at the time, I was all of 23 and looking for some help, and they seemed happy to put me through the paces. But then I did a few more shows at each of these theaters, and sometimes even with the exact same people. We'd still have camaraderie amongst us, but I'd walk away from one feeling excited to come to work the next day and dreading the other. I knew one was a process I had to get through to prove my worth to hopefully collect a higher paycheck one day, and the other I felt I was a valuable member of the team who was extended grace and treated as an intelligent human who was trying to learn as fast as I could to keep up. It was trying to discern this difference that led me to the work I do now, but I also started to notice something. 
With the theater that had the supportive, collaborative environment, the one that allowed the people to be more relaxed and still do good work, I noticed that I was healing. I started to have less tolerance for particular behavior. I was more able to express needs with my coworkers and routinely engage in conversations where I could ask for things and have those needs met without sneering or chastising or belittling. What I know now is that this space was allowing my nervous system to recover from past trauma. I was able to heal childhood trauma in the workplace because of how everyone was able to show up. At the other theater, I had regular moments of experiencing trauma, but then I'd go back to the supportive place and get to recover. Even in the hardest circumstances, I was still healing. Not every moment was full of health and healing, but it was enough for my battered nervous system that it felt like paradise. This is the experience I want for everyone in their workplaces. I want everyone to have the opportunity to heal their stuff because of how their work environment supports it. We can't always get structure or protection or agency within family environments, which is really awful. But weirdly, work is more set up for this because of the legal restraints we have to keep people aligned. Family systems are the Wild West and family therapists are atop their horses, ready to lasso some cattle. Is this metaphor still working? It doesn't matter. We're going with it. Workplaces are more like settled towns where we have laws and rules and expectations. Sure, we occasionally have a rogue bandit, but there are more things in place to deal with them than out in the middle of the desert. Now, what do we need to prevent trauma and heal what has already happened? Trauma is anything that causes physical or emotional pain and has lasting, long-term, maladaptive effects on the structure of the brain. I'm going to say that again. Trauma is anything that causes physical or emotional pain and has lasting, long-term, maladaptive effects on the structure of the brain. This definition comes mostly from the work of Paul Conti, who wrote Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic and How to Heal from It. Having a bad day isn't inherently traumatizing, but when you have persistent events that force your brain to change to be able to survive in maladaptive ways that continually put you at stress, that's trauma. We're talking about the difference between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous systems or the fight and flight and rest and digest parts. Sidebar. I always thought calling the fight flight part of the nervous system the sympathetic nervous system was weird because I associate sympathy with more relaxed and comforting vibes. It turns out it's because in roughly the 16th century, the meaning of the word was connection between things. The original Greek is sum, meaning with, and pathos, meaning feelings. But this evolved, and when it was first used medically in the 1700s by Galen, he meant more than this definition of between parts or between things. This was among the first time medical folks realized that things in the body are interconnected. They thought it was humors being distributed, but we know it's because many things work in concert when the sympathetic nervous system is activated to keep us safe. The parasympathetic nervous system is rest and digest. Para means next to. So our buddy Galen was basically like, eh, it's next to this other thing. And that's how we got the names. So back to trauma. When our sympathetic or fight or flight nervous system is activated, that isn't by itself traumatizing. But if we have something happen that forces your brain to make changes to be able to survive, and those changes are not net positive, that's trauma. This can happen over time, and it can happen all at once. Things like car accidents and acute instances of danger, these serious events, if you are working in ways that are harmful to you to try and avoid replicating them, they get encoded into your brain as trauma. 
And that's a super quick and dirty way of looking at trauma. There's obviously much, much more to it, like a whole field of social sciences. For us at work, we want to make situations where our brain isn't having to respond in maladaptive ways to acute or chronic lack of safety. The key to a healing, non-traumatizing work environment is predictability. When you don't require someone's nervous system to make quick and sudden shifts to stay safe, then you don't incur trauma. So if someone knows what to expect from their workplaces and then their experience matches their expectations, the chances of causing trauma decrease significantly. It's when we get thrown something we weren't expecting and have a fight or flight response that trauma can set in. I like to picture a sine wave which is a curve that goes up and down and up and down in a steady and consistent rhythm. This is how our nervous system likes to act. It likes predictability and shifting smoothly between ups and downs. It only likes to do it in a relatively confined wave so the curves aren't particularly big or steep. With traumatic instances, our nervous system has to shift suddenly and higher than its preferred maximum amplitude. The curve gets steeper and taller. On the downward side, we should have a corresponding downshift. But if it's a consistently traumatizing event, then our upper curve might just look like a mountain range and stay up and spiky with small or no dips down. Nervous system recovery requires moments of rest and digest to make up for fight and flight. For my math nerds, the positive amplitude of the sine wave equals the negative amplitude of the sine wave for a balanced nervous system. If you have too much fight flight that can't be offset by your rest digest, then your nervous system is still in recovery. Predictability means that we can keep the curves of our nervous system's operation relatively small. We can anticipate the need to amp up and plan for it. Think about any instances of trauma you have experienced and do this lightly. Most of it is a product of your nervous system having to respond in a, into a fight or flight state because the situation was not what you were expecting. I'm going to use the example of my husband's cancer care and death. So if you're not in a place to hear about death, fast forward a minute or so. When Andy was diagnosed, the goal was to make sure our relationship wasn't sacrificed and to give him a good life. We did that very well. We had one moment I can remember early in our second year where it felt like our relationship was starting to suffer. And that time I can remember acutely because it was going against our goal. I had to regularly shift to work against this goal to support him in a particular way, but it was eroding our relationship. And that bit was traumatizing. Keeping someone alive at all costs is not the way to go. And we found ourselves in that place for a few weeks. It did a ton of damage because it was counter to what we had discussed, the idea of not sacrificing our relationship. But then we got back on track and trucked along until our second goal had to change, the one about him living a good life. We went from having to give him a good life to giving him a good death. That shift in the goal was traumatizing. His death was not the traumatizing part, which is wild to say. Him dying, having to make my nervous system shift rapidly from good life to good death, that was traumatizing. It understandably pushed me into a fight or flight state, eventually into a free state, and that was what caused the trauma. His death was a natural expected progression of a horrific disease, but it was the day we decided to stop treatment, to enter hospice, to move from one outcome to another. That was the actual traumatizing part. My nervous system had to rapidly adjust from that in a way that was survival-based, and I made some choices that were maladaptive that I continue to undo today. Death itself is normal. It's the way our nervous system has to adapt to the sudden change in the goal that is traumatizing. That's a heavy example, but that's truly the most tangible one I had. So let's just pause there for a moment. All this talk of trauma is making my nervous system start to buzz a little. So let's take a few deep breaths here. I'm going to take four deep breaths. 
I don't know if you can hear Bethany's puppy in the background, Jasper, who's snoring. So he's taking deep breaths with us. Okay, so I'm going to keep going. But if you or I need to stop again to remind myself that we're talking about trauma and don't have to experience it, that we're safe, we can do that and take a few deep breaths again. So predictability. This is why I emphasize structure so much, not only because it keeps us from having to try and do the impossible task of rearranging someone's brain for them, but it's also because structure is inherently predictable. If your goals are consistent, then they're predictable. If the roles are clear, everyone knows what to expect from each other. If processes are transparent, even as they're changing, there's structure baked into changing a process, which is predictable and replicable. So people can build up trust that they will always have the same experience. There will be no surprise. And knowing what to expect allows your nervous system to get out of fight or flight. It can settle and exist and respond to small stimuli with less intensity. It won't need to go into full fight or flight because the changes should be minimal and manageable. So when we're thinking about how to make workspaces for health and healing, and particularly around healing trauma, having work interactions be predictable to minimize the fight or flight response is the key to it all. If you've done this successfully, over time, if there is something that induces a fight or flight response, the folks within that space will likely be so allergic to it, so used to the predictability, the manageability of it, it becomes less and less acceptable to have those kinds of interactions. People who are disruptors in that way get removed or remove themselves. Everyone has regulated nervous systems. So even when things get overwhelming, there's always someone who's calm, cool, and collected to help everyone re-regulate. Creating a supportive structure and teaching everyone within it how to use it well, that's the key to the work I do, but it is not out of reach for everyone. The good news is you don't need a me to make that happen. I'm so glad you could join me today. Share this episode with someone who you think needs to hear it. Follow me on Instagram at Veronica and sign up for my newsletter at wilhelmconsulting.com. Yeah, check the show notes for the links to everything. Check the show notes. Check the show notes. Check the show notes. Excellent.